Today we have a great honor to have as a guest Sergei Sorbyakov. Hello, Sergei. Hi, Dan. Nice to be here. Sergey is a de facto uh, expert in deep neural networks, but you didn't start there. You started with uh, agents. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of your technical career? Right. So when I was in the university back many, many years mm -hmm. ago, a uh, topic I was working on was um, soccer. So we participated in uh, different competitions all mm -hmm. around the world. And actually, it's all about multi-agent systems, mm -hmm. how you design a system uh, composed of multiple uh, distributed entities that can collaborate together in order to achieve a certain goal, mm -hmm. like score a goal. And this is where I uh, was introduced to this whole new field for me, uh, multi-agent systems. Did you ever play soccer outside of the multi-agent systems? Oh yeah, when I was in the school, uh, that was probably fifth or sixth grade, uh, I was into uh, soccer mm -hmm. a little bit. And what I liked the most about that is that when it's winter, like January, and when it's like minus 25, mm -hmm. you have to go to the uh, stadium mm -hmm. and run. So, so did your soccer playing help you with uh, designing multi-agent systems? Um, I can't say that, really, because it's been a long time between those activities. Mm -hmm. But today you are, as I already said, an expert, de facto expert. Everyone comes to you in, in our company when it comes to deep neural networks. How did that transition happen from agents to deep neural networks? Oh, so um, um, I was studying multi-agent systems for probably um, maybe uh, 10 years, maybe 11 years. And then uh, I joined HP uh, back in 2010, and we started to work on uh, different problems related to uh, natural language processing. Mm -hmm. And after that, when HP uh, announced uh, the machine program, we decided to see what algorithms can be run efficiently on systems like that with a large memory, with a large number of accelerators connected to that memory. Mm -hmm. And this is where we started to work on a, a deep, uh, deep neural networks. So whenever I come here over the weekends, I always find you. How much time and effort do you put into your own training? Well, this is what I do over the weekends. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't have time during the regular work days. Mm -hmm. And so normally over the weekends, I read articles, solve small problems, um, read books, um, so just to uh, keep myself up with, um, with the you know, current state of the art in the industry and academia. So becoming expert doesn't come just like that. It's yeah. really the hard work. And um, deep neural networks are part of a much broader uh, area of AI. Uh, and it's very popular nowadays and apparently quite successful in solving some problems. Can you tell us how it came about? Because it went up and down, and, you know, it has valleys and peaks over the years. Yeah, so uh, when people talk about neural networks, they usually talk about like different, uh, you know, phases. Uh, for instance, one of the probably one of the biggest uh, uh, things that happened was the invention of backpropagation mm -hmm. back in 80s, right? But then uh, the problem was that around that time, we didn't have uh, enough data, enough computer sources to really train uh, big models. And now we have uh, a large, you know, number of accelerators, different types of accelerators. We have access to much larger data sets, mm -hmm. and we know a bit more about neural networks. So when you bring all this together, you get these amazing results that we see right now. So all your expertise you wanted to transfer to the rest of the world. You came up uh, with deep learning cookbook. Can you explain what it is? How did you cook it up? Right, so uh, about back in 2000, 
uh, I think, uh, 17, maybe 16, we realized that customers uh, started to ask questions like, um, so we have our deep learning workloads, mm -hmm. right? What is the best software and hardware stack for that? Right? What, what, what is it better to use uh, accelerators or central processors mm -hmm. or maybe something else? And we realized that at that time, we didn't have any tool that we could use to actually collect performance data and make those recommendations. So we came up with an idea of DL Cookbook, mm -hmm. uh, uh, basically a benchmarking suite for running benchmarks and tests, collect data, and then use the data to guide our customers you know, in the right direction. So mm -hmm. propose the right hardware and software stack for their workloads. And if I remember correctly from what you're telling me, you can also capture and replay this, so use it as a proof if you know, in the future someone wants to rerun these tests and... Uh, uh, this is an interesting question. Everything is on GitHub, so mm -hmm. we can go back to any previous version we had. But I think what's most interesting is that right now we have a large database of, of historical performance mm -hmm. results. We have several tens of thousands of those points. So we can uh, go back and see how performance changed in time, and maybe we can you know, learn something useful from that data. Looks like it's a uh, next project for you. Yeah. But uh, you also told me that your experience and uh, lessons learned from Cookbook, you're trying to transfer to another effort, which is called MLPerf. Yes. Can you tell us first about MLPerf, what it is, and then how did Deep Learning Cookbook influence MLPerf? Um, MLPerf is a nonprofit organization that was funded back in, founded back in 2018. Mm -hmm. And the mission of this organization is to uh, provide a fair, well-recognized, open benchmarks for uh, machine learning and deep learning workloads mm -hmm. to be able to compare uh, different hardware and software stacks. And uh, so the idea is that we use standard collection of benchmarks proposed by industry and academia as I mentioned, well recognized by community. Mm -hmm. So those results are credible and those results are verified by MLPerf community. And essentially, um, I mentioned that when we started DL Cookbook, there was no MLPerf. So right now, HP is a supporting organization of MLPerf and um, uh, we work together with MLPerf in working groups to propose better benchmarks uh, that reflect a greater variety of uh, problems and domains in this area. And also we try to make MLPerf, you know, more, uh, uh, more to, to, uh, to, to, to use by, you know, people in a, in a more easy way. That's uh, an excellent example how you can do technology transfer, uh, not yeah. just inside, but influence really the whole world through the standard. But MLPerf is not the only standard that you're participating. You and I both uh, attended Onyx Yes. Events. Can you tell us a little bit about what ONNX is and uh, why it's important? Yeah, uh, maybe five or, so, uh, or six years ago, we just had one deep learning framework, mm -hmm. I think, which was um, Cafe. And right now, we have a vast majority of those frameworks TensorFlow, PyTorch, MXNet, and many, many others. Mm -hmm. And we also have many uh, inference engines that we use to basically take trained models and apply them to real problems. So, and the problem here is that if we have this large number of tools, it's really hard to take a model trained in one framework and use it in an inference engine, you know, uh, in a different framework. And ONIX, which stands for Open Neural Network Exchange Format, is used exactly for these purposes. So the goal is to introduce, again, recognized by community, interchangeable, open interchangeable format for neural networks so mm -hmm. that I can take a framework, train my model, then serialize my model in this format, 
and then open it and run it in any other framework or inference engine. So it enables this model exchange between different frameworks. But interestingly enough, I think the whole hardware startup community is also benefiting from this by doing compiler off of Onyx and then thereby getting support from all these frameworks rather than porting all these frameworks to their um, hardware. Which brings us to the question of, of what you mentioned earlier that uh, there's uh, a number of accelerators today. How did they come about? And, and can you tell us a little bit about uh, their GPUs, TPUs, yes. and a bunch of other startups? Right. So when we talk about deep learning workloads, we really talk about matrix multiply. Mm -hmm. This is a key operation. Maybe up to 90% or 95% of these workloads, you do matrix multiplication. So if you can efficiently and fast multiply those matrices, mm -hmm. you can run these workloads very fast. And I think all these um, large, diverse set of accelerators that we have right now build on similar principles, but implementing those in different ways allows us to basically explore different possibilities. It's something that we call Cambrian Explosion, and we have a mm -hmm. large number of these accelerators. So you are dropping off all these unnecessary components of traditional central processing units that are not really utilized. You can just focus and maximize performance using Accelerator. So we spoke about hardware just now. You spoke earlier about various frameworks and anything in between like Onyx. But what about the applications on top of it or, or use cases really? What are the most interesting use cases for AI today? Um, I think if you asked me this question a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. I would answer that probably healthcare is one of the most important mm -hmm. uh, applications, right? Where uh, drug discovery, another application. Uh, but now I think I would answer that social aspect of that is also very important, mm -hmm. especially with the rise uh, of um, uh, models that are available online that can, you know, fake uh, news articles and videos and pictures. Mm -hmm. I think this, uh, this has become a very important um, aspect of this technology that we have to deal with. So there's intentional fake and then there's unintentional bias. Yes. Can you tell us more about this unintentional aspect? Uh, well, there is no magic in training these models, right? Mm -hmm. they, are, they, they, are they are trained based on available data set. If there is a bias in a data set, then models will have that bias as well. And so a large number of research efforts in the community are dedicated to basically identifying that bias and somehow, you know, correcting that. So bias in, bias out principle. Yeah. Uh, so you said about the past of AI, you just spoke about the present. Where do you think AI is going? Do you think there are other interesting use cases that will become popular and really impactful and, and useful to humanity? Um, it's an interesting question, and I think that um, uh, some of the some some interesting questions that people um, are talking about right now is artificial general intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's possible to achieve, um, but there are several. Uh, commonly recognized approaches how to do that and uh, it'll be interesting to um, actually uh, see uh, where you know we'll go and what direction we'll take mm -hmm. in order to achieve that. So that's kind of questionable path. Is there anything yeah. that looks more promising than that one? Um, I can tell that I think right now uh, community mostly recognize two approaches to achieve general artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. One is 
that we need to invent something that we don't have right now. It just doesn't exist because we haven't invented that yet. Mm -hmm. But the f second approach tells us that we actually have everything, right? We just need to take those components and bring them together in the right way and throw in more data and more compute. Interesting. Uh, another way of transferring your knowledge is through papers and patents. And I know you have published, especially recently, quite a bit and wrote a lot of disclosures. Can you tell us about your experience in doing these two? Yeah, writing a paper, I think, is very important. And uh, uh, by doing so, you can achieve several things. Mm -hmm. One is actually you let community know what you've been working on, and you can get their feedback and response. Uh, the other, uh, I think, important, one of the most important aspects for me itself, when I write those papers, when I describe what I've been doing, I start to better understand the problem that I'm working on. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, in doing your projects, sometimes there's unknowns, so you need to do some research. In other cases, it's just doing the work that is to mm -hmm. develop what you discovered. How do you differentiate between these R and D? Um, I think when I think about research and development in, uh, in my everyday life, um, I consider a development process something that cannot fail. So I have a deadline or a mm -hmm. milestone, and I just need to deliver those results. So when, I th when I'm thinking about research aspect, uh, then you know you can fail, and that's normal because something just doesn't work, and we need to find a better, you know, better approach. To Sometimes that. failing is the goal, yes, so that the development doesn't happen if uh, if it's not appropriate. Mm -hmm. So you were originally from Russia, from Saint Petersburg, and so you have broader perspective than a lot of people who only live either in Russia or United States. How do you compare the two? What is your personal experience? Um, I think there's, there are so many differences that we can't cover all of them uh, at this um, yeah, podcast. But what I think uh, is what I'd like to mention is that um, um, I think one of the great advantages being here in Silicon Valley mm -hmm. is you know you meet new people, uh, you work and nature. I, I, probably everybody's talking about that. Mm -hmm. Nature is so beautiful here, you can hike in January. That's something you can do in St. Petersburg. But no hockey here. You have to go to Canada. Yeah, no snow. When I was young, I wanted always to become astronaut. What did you want to become? Did you ever think of becoming engineer? Um, actually, no. I don't think so. So uh, I got my first computer when I was in fifth grade. My father assembled that based on you know pieces that he bought uh, on the market, mm -hmm. and there was the Spectrum, and I had that for about maybe um, three or four years. This is when I first time really you know. Uh, I was introduced to this uh, technology. Mm -hmm. And I think I really uh, decided to become an engineer or at least um, uh, you know, work in this area sometime in 10th grade, mm -hmm. uh, close to uh, graduation. That's pretty early. You, you knew what you were doing. Yeah, at that time I realized that I'm good at math and mm -hmm. physics and I'm not good at things like biology and literature. So the uh, choice was obvious. So based on your very positive experience and impact you have uh, made over your career, what is your message to the young generation? Um, I think um, my message would be, uh, so there's a proverb which sounds like easy come, easy go, mm -hmm. right? And if, you, uh, if you're uh, solving a problem and you just know Google for a solution and then you implement it and forget it, so it, easy come, right, and it will go away uh, in a short amount of time. So I suggest to, uh, whenever you work on a particular problem, just deep dive into that problem, you know, 
read books, articles, and this is how you learn things. No free AI. Yes. You have to deep dive. No free AI. Yeah. Okay. Great, great uh, talk. Great meeting you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dan, for inviting me. I hope you all enjoyed as much as I have.